Welcome to a special edition of the Women in Foreign Policy podcast. My name is Ashley, and I'm one of your hosts and co-producers of this podcast. Right now, we are bringing you a special edition to talk to Lucinda Crichton. And I have with us Hannah, who conducted the interview. And we're going to chat a little bit about the interview, and then we're going to let you listen to the entire conversation. So Hannah, if you can, tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe a little bit about our guest. Hi, Ashley. Thanks for having me on the podcast. As you said, I'm a contributor with Women in Foreign Policy. So I regularly interview women for the Women in Foreign Policy website. Uh, And one woman who I recently interviewed was Lucinda Crichton, who is a former Irish politician and minister for European Affairs, who now runs her own consulting firm. And I thought she'd be a really interesting person to interview for Women in Foreign Policy because she really was one of the golden kids of Irish politics. She was a member of the political party Fine Gael, and was elected a member of parliament at the age of 27 and then after one term and another election she was appointed as minister for european affairs for ireland so she was a 32 year old female minister which really is a rarity in irish and eu politics Um, and lucinda really was seen very much as a potential future irish prime minister and the main reason lucinda is now out of the running for the first irish a female prime minister is that in 2013 there was a bill put forward by the Irish Parliament which effectively legislated for rulings that the Irish Supreme Court had made over the past 15 years in relation to permitting abortion in very limited circumstances where there was a threat to the mother's life. And for those listening who are not familiar with the quirks of the Irish Constitution, an amendment was made that gave equal protection to the life of the mother in a fetus, which created all sorts of issues in terms of how pregnant women with complications were treated in hospitals. Uh, and as well, um, it stopped governments from introducing mainstream abortion services in Ireland. So Lucinda voted against that bill that legislated for abortion in very limited circumstances in 2013. She went against her party's whip on this vote and that decision ultimately resulted in her being expelled from the party uh, and she had to resign as Minister for European Affairs after only two years. So she then went on to found another political party, Reynua, uh, which is the Irish for a new era. Uh, and this kind of party was it was effectively a kind of right-wing Christian party. And she ran under the banner of this party in the next general, general election as their leader. Uh, and she ultimately lost her parliamentary seat. And, and then after that, she went on to set up her own public affairs firm, Vulcan Consulting. Uh, so there are a lot of different angles to her career, and I thought she'd be a really interesting person to interview for women in foreign policy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that really interesting background, especially for people who aren't super familiar with Irish politics. I think that's uh, that's really necessary context to to get an understanding of what's going on in this interview. And I, I really appreciate that background from you. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what we're going to hear in this interview? I mean, I think you're going to hear a lot about the importance of forging a network um, and thinking about, you know, what kind of network do you need to make sure you progress in your career? Because I think it's interesting that one of the things that Lucinda says helped her in being appointed as Minister for European Affairs so early on was that she had been very involved in um, youth politics at the EU level. So she had contacts in Brussels and around Europe, um, and that helped her um, be in a strong position when she uh, was put forward for a position uh, with the European People's Party as well. 
Well, so I'm I'm really interested to hear this interview and I'm I'm super excited for our listeners to get to hear it as well. Thank you again for conducting it and thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us a little bit about the interview kind of behind the scenes. Uh, without further ado, let's get to the interview. So Lucinda, after the general election in 2011 and after one term as a TD, what were your expectations around being appointed as a minister and how did you position yourself for the role of Minister for European Affairs? That's a good question. Um, I had absolutely no expectation of um, of being appointed to a ministerial role for lots of reasons, dynamics within my party, etc. Um, but I suppose I was lucky, you know, um, and there's always an element of luck in politics, but also I had spent my entire kind of adult um, career involved in European politics before I was a city councillor, before I was a member of parliament, um, I had been really deeply involved in the youth of the European People's Party and uh, uh, and I was really passionate about it. You know, it was an amazing way to get to know other young people who were interested in politics all across Europe, not just from the EU, but from the Balkans, from places like Belarus. So it was just fascinating. And uh, and so I, I guess I had built up um, a, a certain expertise over the years. So even though, you know, I was relatively young, um, at 27 when I entered the Dáil, I, you know, I would have had a lot of um, knowledge and, and practical experience of travelling to other countries, of understanding the kind of political and foreign policy dynamics. Um, and so I was then a member of the European Affairs Committee in the Irish Parliament. I was also a member of the European Scrutiny Committee, which is pretty turgid going through regulations and directives and uh, and so on um, ad nauseum. But, um, but it was a great sort of training ground and... Uh, and then I think I was, you know, I was fortunate that European affairs um, was quite a, a pivotal role um, at that time because of the fact that Ireland was in a bailout programme. You know, our reputation across Europe was was um, in pretty poor shape. And uh, and so having somebody who kind of knew the ropes, I think maybe was was one of the factors in um, in my appointment. Uh, and so obviously a, a feature of most Western um, countries is that politicians are a lot older and a lot more male than the average member mm-hmm. of the public. You know, as a young female mm-hmm. minister, mm-hmm. you know, get, working at the EU level, what what was that like? Was it kind of a factor at meetings or some, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, um, so I think when I was appointed um, Europe minister, you know, the ministers change in council all the time. You have twenty eight countries, so obviously they're. You know, there's a lot of turnover, but on average, there would have been two to three females around the table um, at the General Affairs Council, which would have been my council. I also participated a lot in the Foreign Affairs Council, too, because um, the foreign minister um, was also deputy prime minister. And so he was consumed with a lot of the the sort of financial crisis at home. So I ended up deputising for him a lot, both at, you know, Foreign Affairs Council, but also other multilateral bodies. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, probably two or three women on average in in those meetings of twenty eight, twenty seven, and then twenty eight ministers when when Croatia joined. Um, but I was kind of used to that, frankly. I mean, the Irish Parliament has a very low female representation; it's improving slightly, but um, it's just a feature of um, of the environment in politics still, unfortunately. But it is improving, which is which is great. Mm-hmm. And um, during your time as Minister for European Affairs, what would you say were the kind of biggest challenges? Um, uh, I would say probably 
uh, three things. One was rebuilding Ireland's reputation uh, internationally, both within the EU, but also externally with, you know, with, um, with other third countries uh, around the globe. Um, that was a big priority and I spent a huge amount of time traveling and meeting and, you know, explaining. Um, so that was, that was one. Um, two was the challenge of reducing our debt burden, um, which was an international challenge because it was, um, it was really a decision that had to be made by our European partners. Um, so, um, that was a kind of an all of government effort. I worked obviously very closely with the Taoiseach, our prime minister. I attended European council meetings, which were really complex. We went, you know, we were, we, we endured many, many all night sessions, um, negotiating, um, the terms and conditions of our, um, of our um, bailout arrangements. Um, so that was a- another part of it. Um, and um, I think the probably the other big challenge, well, I ran the Irish presidency of the council, so that was, that was definitely a challenge, but it was, it was um, you know, it was, I had a fantastic team and support. But I think the third big challenge was a referendum that we had to hold in Ireland in 2012 on the fiscal compact. Um, and when, obviously, <laughs> You know, there was a hope in the Irish system that a referendum might not be necessary because everybody feared it. You know, sentiment because of the uh, bailout terms and conditions, sentiment towards Europe was, was, you know, was deteriorating and there was a real kind of Eurosceptic movement growing. Um, but I embraced it and I actually felt, and I said this to colleagues at the time, I felt a referendum could be a good thing. It would engage people and help us to explain to them why solidarity with our, with and from our European partners was so essential. Um, and, you know, effectively it enabled us to, to, to set up the ESM, the European um, um, Stabilisation Me- Mechanism. And, uh, and we actually managed to succeed in um, approving that referendum uh, by a margin of 60-40. So Simon Coveney, who's now our Deputy Prime Minister, um, was Director of Elections and I was his Deputy. And we ran, I think, a really effective campaign and uh, we worked really well together and with all of the stakeholders in Ireland and even the opposition parties, um, to well, some of them, uh, to whom I would also give credit. Um, so it was, a, it was a big challenge, but it was uh, one that I really relished because it meant explaining Europe uh, to our citizens and I think we could do more of that in Europe frankly um, and as someone who was involved very heavily involved with a complicated referendum on, on EU, the mm. EU what do you think went wrong with the Brexit referendum everything. <laughs> everything I mean you can't for starters you can't spend you know 40 years basically telling your citizens that Europe's bad and then try and reverse that in a matter of three months that was the first problem, you know. I mean, this uh, hostility to the European um, ideal has been sort of ingrained in the British um, political psyche for so long, and that um, has been, you know, p- perpetuated by the British media. And I mean, it has to have a huge impact on the national psyche then. So that's number one problem, and that will, I think, take a long time to undo if it can be undone. Um, um, and secondly, you know, it was just a lacklustre campaign. Um, you know, it, it, the the fact that half of the cabinet was equivocal at best. Um, obviously, many of them opposed it publicly. Um, um, but you know, people like Theresa May, who you know sat on the fence, frank, frankly, and um, and uh, kind of tried to stay out of the the discourse when you know she and they should have been advocating passionately to stay in the European Union, not because it was the least worst option, but because you know, Britain's place uh, in the world is amplified by its membership of the European Union. But it was never explained. Um, and uh, I think the, the whole campaign was characterised by 
by political cowardice, frankly, and was mm. deeply disturbing to watch it. I was in the UK a lot during the campaign. There was a group called Ar- Ar- Irish for Europe um, who, who did a lot of good work in trying to, to engage mm. with Irish communities here. Um, but, uh, you know, it was it was a lost cause. I mean, as soon as David Cameron announced he was hold, holding the referendum, I was sitting in the lounge in Brussels airport watching his speech and I turned to my colleague and I said, that is going down. That is just not going to be possible to pass that referendum. Mm. Fortunately, that came to pass. Mm. Um, and so as well as your role as Minister for European Affairs, you were also Vice President of the European People's Party, um, which is one of the largest parties in Europe at the EU level um, so could you talk us through how you ended up in that position and, and what it was like yeah. being part of a party that has members from all over the EU um, so it is vitally important for Ireland to be part of these alliances at European level level, and um, for Fine Gael being part of the European People's Party the biggest bloc um, has been hugely beneficial and um, you know while uh, Fine Gael, the current government party um was in opposition um you know for for many years sort of in the political wilderness domestically we used our membership of the EPP I think very strategically um Enda Kenny when he was leader of the opposition spent a lot of time cultivating relationships with people like Angela Merkel um and many others um you know key players across the European Union um, and that really stood to us then in the financial crisis and stood to us subsequently and continues to today. So it's really important. Um, I suppose my I was fortunate when I stood, I, I, I achieved the highest vote of all the candidates um, at the Congress when I was elected um, because, well, for a number of reasons, but I think because I had been so deeply involved in the youth of EPP for many years, um, I had been Deputy Secretary General of the Youth VPP, which meant I participated in the political bureau of the party, the, the, the senior party, if you like. And so I had a lot of contacts and a lot of networks in every EU capital and beyond. And um, and also at that stage, I was Minister for European Affairs. So everybody knew me from that role also. Um, and, uh, and I think um, um, the fact that the youth organisation supported me, I was sort of their candidate. So I wasn't just my national party's candidate. I was also the candidate um, supported by um, the youth organisation, which spans over 40 countries. So um, I, had a, I had a good sort of starting point and great support. Um, and, uh, and thankfully, um, that worked out really well. And, you know, it was a it was a very good time to be a vice president of the European People's Party because so much was happening in Europe at that time. You then resigned as Minister for European Affairs two years after being appointed due to your decision to vote against your party in relation to the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Bill which legislated for abortion in certain circumstances in Ireland. Do you have any regrets about the circumstances of that resignation? And is there anything you would do differently if you knew you only had two years as Minister for European Affairs? Um, I, I'm not sure that it would have been possible um, humanly to pack anything else in. Um, the, you know, the Irish presidency totally dominated. Um, uh, we also had the chairmanship of the OSCE, um, during that period and I did a lot of work um, with the OSCE down in the Balkans um, you know we had the referendum in Ireland we had you know all of the debt um, bailout um, negotiations so I'm not sure there's a whole lot that we, we more we could have done um, I was forced to resign I did, you know I didn't voluntarily resign I, I, I was um, I was expelled from my party for not supporting um, that legislation and uh, I 
you know, I still believe that was heavy handed and wrong. And, you know, the interesting thing is that all of the political parties in Ireland now have a have a free vote on conscience issues. And so I don't see myself as having resigned. I see myself as having been been forced out um, most unfairly. Um, and after working literally around the clock um, for two and a half years um, from for, for my country. Um, but I have no re- no regrets whatsoever. Um, I think if you don't stand for anything in politics, um, there's very little point in being there. Uh, we have a lot of people, um, as we see with populist movements around Europe and even with the political situation in the UK at the moment, um, who, you know, who, who basically treat politics as if it's a game um, and as, as if it's just about being on the right side of, um, of a debate because it's the popular or populist thing to do. I've never subscribed to that sort of political ethos and I never will. So I have no regrets from that point of view. Um, of course, I'd love to have continued as minister. My priority... Um, as we ended the Irish presidency was to begin a process of developing a white paper on Ireland's relationship with the European Union. Um, We hadn't done that since the 70s, really having a strategic look at our relationship and where we fit in. So the EU has changed beyond recognition, but our sort of approach to it hasn't really been developed um, as a country. So that's what I would have liked to do. Um, And uh, it hasn't happened since. Um, but I'm reliably told by a friend of mine in the Oireachtas that um, that, that is um, in, the, in the Irish National Parliament that, that that is now something that is going to be considered. So um, it's a little bit late, um, but better late than never. Sure. And um, I guess after leaving Fine Gael, you went on to um, establish your own political party, Renewa, mm. um, and you contested under that party's mm. banner in the mm. 2016 general elections. Um, and I was wondering when you ultimately weren't successful in that, what kind of thought process did you go through in terms of deciding what next? Because you obviously yeah. had yeah. You know, tons of experience, high level yeah. government experience, you founded yeah. your own political party. Yeah. So, you know, why establish your own public affairs firm? Why not work for someone else or for another public institution? Um, uh, good question. I, I suppose I, um, I had... You know, setting up a new party was a big risk because we're a very traditional sort of um, country in terms of how we approach politics um, and the two main parties have dominated since the foundation of the state. So I knew it was going to be a very big challenge. And I had I had clearly contemplated the, the, the risk of losing my seat. Like it, it was it was an inherent risk in in the action that I took. And uh, and so um while you know while it was a you know it's always going to be a shock when overnight you've lost your job and your income and you know everything you've worked for which you know was the case for me I had sort of been in politics since I was 18 and all of a sudden um it was over um that's a pretty existential feeling um I particularly when you have a young young family um but I, I suppose I'm the kind of person who just you know I just dust myself down and get on with it so um, I I very quickly started talking to people and having conversations with people who I respect, um, people like John Bruton, our former Prime Minister, um, people like Mary Harney, our former Deputy Prime Minister. Um, and it was really interesting because they're people who've made a transition out of politics into other roles. And um, it gave me a lot of clarity, actually. Um, and uh, I had, you know, I had certainly considered the idea of going into an in-house role maybe a corporate affairs or a public affairs role in a in a you know we've no shortage of large multinationals in Ireland um, and they're all hiring all the time um, but um, I think I fairly quickly realized that that wouldn't be for me I was used to being my own boss when you're a politician you're you know and before that I was a barrister so you know you're a sole practitioner you do your own thing and I quite like that um, and I had always wanted to be in business um, so 
I tentatively set up um, a, a limited company. I took a break, then I went to the Middle East on holidays and I you know, did a few things, went with my family. And, and then um, the following summer, I took on my first client, which was a, a foreign policy security client, actually. So um, that sort of got me going. And, uh, and then, uh, and frankly, I haven't looked back. I really love the job that I do and it's just so interesting. And what's it like working in international affairs now from the side of the private sector rather than you know, on the inside in government? Um, it's good. I mean, I, there's probably nothing that can compare to being a minister if you have a meaty role and it's an interesting period in your country's history, which is what I had and what it was when I was Minister of European Affairs in Ireland. Um, that was, you know, I, I find it hard to imagine that any role I'll ever have will kind of uh, top that. But um, but I, I, I really like the dynamic of being in the private sector. And also, you know, I mean, what I suppose what we're about in public affairs is trying to help policymakers and legislators understand how their decisions will impact on business. Um, and, you know, that's something that I suppose when I was on the receiving end of that, I didn't find it was done very well, frankly. You know, um, I found some of the lobbying and the engagement pretty poor <laughs> both at european level and domestically in ireland um so i suppose what we try to do is we don't really lobby directly but what we try to do is advise firms on um you know what's coming down the tracks and how to anticipate it and then how to engage and you know how to frame an argument um which is just really interesting and and when as you see the results of that then um you know it, it's it's sort of it's it's very dynamic process and we work across lots of industries and so we would work a lot with tech um, financial services particularly mainly because of brexit um it has um unfortunately it has created um, a lot of um, opportunity for us with um with the banking sector and some funds um so it's really interesting being on the other side. And I find the regulatory process, the policymaking process, really interesting. I always have. I suppose it's probably why I was in politics. So it's just, you know, it's fascinating being on the other side and, and seeing how it can be influenced. Sure. And um, I was wondering if you have any advice for anyone who's reading your interview in Women in Foreign Policy or listening to it on the podcast, um, what advice you would have for them if they wanted to pursue a career in European affairs? Um. I would say get some political experience um, and uh, and even, you know, I, sometimes, you know, I, I, I've hired quite a few people in recent times and I've interviewed a lot of people and uh, you, sometimes I find that that, um, that my interviewees try to hide their political involvement, whereas actually I don't care what party you've been involved in, but I like the fact that you have been in that dynamic, that A, that you're politically motivated, that you've bothered to go and join a party or a youth organisation and get involved. Um, and uh, and if it's if it's a, a party that is contrary to my sort of ideological outlook, that's fine. There's no problem. It's it's not a it's not certainly not an obstacle. But I think um, that sort of experience is essential. I mean, trying to work in public affairs, having never really been part of the political cut and thrust, um, I think it means you just lack a certain element of understanding, comprehension, a kind of a je ne sais quoi. So um, I, I, I think it's a real advantage to you know work as an advisor or at least to be active in a political party um, and gaining that, that inside experience because you will never have the same insight from reading the newspapers as you will glean from actually being part of the dynamic. Sure. Um, and one final question. If Theresa May hired you to advise her on Brexit, what would your advice be? 
um, go into Parliament, uh, throw down the gauntlet, um, say that your deal has been rejected comprehensively, that there is no consensus in Parliament and that you have to return to the people. Thanks very much for that. <laughs>